Section 11, Volume 2 of the Book of A Thousand Nights and a Night. Translated by Richard Burton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Book of a Thousand Nights and a Night. Volume 2. Section 11. When it was the forty-fifth night, she said, It hath reached me, O auspicious king, that the caliph, after marvelling at his eloquence of tongue and sweetness of speech, said to him, Draw near to me. So he drew near, and quoth the king, Tell me thy tale, and declare to me thy case. So Ghanim sat down and related to him what had befallen him in Baghdad, of his sleeping in the tomb, and of his opening the chest after the three slaves had departed, and informed him, in short, of everything that had happened to him from commencement to conclusion, none of which we will repeat for interest fails in twice-told tales. The caliph was convinced that he was a true man, so he invested him with the dress of honour, and placed him near himself in token of favour, and said to him, Acquit me of the responsibility I have incurred. And Ghanim did so, saying, O our lord the sultan, of a truth thy slave and all things his two hands own are his masters. The caliph was pleased at this, and gave orders to set apart a palace for him and assigned to him pay and allowances, rations and donations, which amounted to something immense. So he removed thither with sister and mother, after which the caliph, hearing that his sister Fitna was in beauty a very Fitna, a mere seduction, demanded her in marriage of Ghanim, who replied, She is thy handmaid, as I am thy slave. The caliph thanked him, and gave him a hundred thousand dinars, then summoned the witnesses and the kazi, and on one and the same day they wrote out the two contracts of marriage between the caliph and Fitna, and between Ganim bin Ayub and Kut al-Kulub, and the two marriages were consummated on one and the same night. When it was morning, the caliph gave orders to record the history of what had befallen Ghanim from first to last, and to deposit it in the royal muniment rooms, that those who came after him might read it and marvel at the dealings of destiny, and put their trust in him who created the night and the day. Yet, O auspicious king, this story to which thou hast designed give ears is on no wise no more wondrous than the tale of King Omar bin al-Numan, and his son Sharkan and Sau al-Makan, and what befell them on things seen and peregrine. The king asked her, And what was their story? And she answered, It hath reached me, O auspicious king, that there was in the city of safety, Baghdad, before the caliphate of Abd al-Malik bin Marwan, a king Omar bin al-Nu'uman, Hais, 
who was of the mighty giants, and had subjected to the Khosres of Persia and the Kaisers of eastern Rome. For none could warm himself at his fire, nor could any avail to meet him in the field of foray and fray. And when he was angered, there came forth from his nostrils sparks of flame. He had made himself king over all quarters, and Allah had subjected to him all his creatures. His word went forth to all great cities, and his hosts had harried the farthest land. East and west had come under his command with whatsoever regions lay interspersed between them. Hind and Sind and Sin, the holy land, Al-Hijjas, the rich mountains of Al-Yaman, and the archipelagos of India and China. Moreover, he reigned supreme over the north country, and Diyarbakr, or Mesopotamia, and over Sudan, the eastern Negroland, and the islands of the ocean, and all the far-famed rivers of the earth, Sihun and Yahun, Nile and Euphrates. He sent envoys and ambassadors to capitals the most remote, to provide him with true report, and they would bring back tidings of justice and peace, with assurance of loyalty and obedience, and of prayers in the pulpits for King Omar bin al-Nu'uman. For he was, O ruler of the age, a right noble king and there came to him presents of rarities and toll and tribute from all lands of his governing. This mighty monarch had a son, Islip Sharkan, who was likest of all men to his father, and who proved himself one of the prodigies of his time for subduing the brave and bringing his contemporaries to bane and ban. For this his father loved him with love so great none could be greater and made him heir to the kingdom after himself. The prince grew up till he reached man's estate, and was twenty years old, and Allah subjected his servants to him by reason of his great might and prowess in battle. Now his father, King Omar, had four wives legally married, but Allah had vouchsafed him no son by them, save Sharkan whom he had begotten upon one of them, and the rest were barren. Moreover, he had three hundred and sixty concubines, after the number of days in the Coptic year, who were of all nations, and he had furnished for each and every a private chamber within his own palace. For he had built twelve pavilions, after the number of the months, each containing thirty private chambers, which thus numbered three hundred and threescore, wherein he lodged his handmaids, and he appointed according to law for each one her night, when he lay with her, and came not again to her for a full year. And on this wise he abode for a length of time. Meanwhile his son Sharkan was making himself renowned in all quarters of the world, and his father was proud of him, and his might waxed and grew mightier, so that he passed all bounds and bore himself masterfully, and took by storm castles and cities. Presently, by decree of the decreer, a handmaid among the handmaids of Omar bin Uman became pregnant, 
and her pregnancy being announced to the harem the king was informed thereof whereupon he rejoiced with exceeding joy and said haply it will be a son and so all my offspring will be males then he documented the date of her conception and entreated her with all manner of kindness but when the tidings came to sharkan he was troubled and the matter seemed to him a sore one and a grievous and he said verily one cometh who shall dispute with me the sovereignty so quoth he to himself if this concubine bear a male child i will kill it but he kept that intention hidden in his heart such was the case with sharkan but what happened in the matter of the damsel was as follows she was a rumia a greek girl by name sophia or sophia whom the king of rome and lord of caesarea had sent to king omar as a present together with great store of gifts and of rarities she was the fairest of favour and loveliest of all his handmaids and the most regardful of her honour and she was gifted with a wit as penetrating as her presence was fascinating now she had served the king on the night of his sleeping with her saying to him o king i desire of the god of the heavens that he bless thee this night with a male child by me so i may bring him up with the best of rearing and enable him to reach man's estate perfect in intelligence good manners and prudent bearing a speech which much pleased the king during her pregnancy she was instant in prayer fervently supplicating the lord to bless her with a goodly male child and make his birth easy to her and allah heard her petition so after her months were accomplished she sat safely upon the birth stool now the king had deputed a eunuch to let him know if the child she should bring forth were male or female and in like way his son sharkan had sent one to bring him tidings of the same in due time sophia was delivered of a child which the midwives examined and found to be a girl with a face sheenier than the moon so they announced this to all present in the room whereupon the king's messenger carried the news to him and sharkan's eunuch did the like with his master who rejoiced with exceeding joy but after the two had departed quoth sophia to the midwives wait with me a while for i feel as if there were still somewhat in my womb then she cried out and the pains of childbed again took her and allah made it easy to her and she gave birth to a second child the wise women looked at it and found it a boy like the full moon with forehead flower-white and cheek ruddy bright with rosy light whereupon the mother rejoiced as did the eunuchs and attendants and all the company and sophia was delivered of the afterbirth whilst all in the palace sent forth a thrill of joy the rest of the concubines heard it and envied her lot and the tidings reached omar son of al numan who was glad and rejoiced at the excellent news then he rose and went to her and kissed her head 
after which she looked at the boy, and bending over him kissed him, whilst the damsels struck the tabours and played on instruments of music. And the king gave order that the boy should be named Sao al-Makan, and his sister Nusat al-Saman. They answered, Hearing and obedience, and did his bidding. So he appointed wet nurses and dry nurses, and eunuchs and attendants to serve them, and assigned them rations of sugar and diet drinks and unguents and else beside, beyond the power of tongue to rehearse. Moreover, the people of Baghdad, hearing that Allah had blessed their king with issue, decorated the city, and made proclamation of the glad tidings with drum and tom-tom. And the emirs and wazirs and high dignitaries came to the palace, and wished King Omar bin al-Nu'uman joy of his son, Sao al-Makam, and of his daughter Nusat al-Saman. Wherefore he thanked them, and bestowed on them dresses of honour, and further favoured them with gifts, and dealt largest to all, gentle and simple, who were present. After this fashion he did for four days full told, and he lavished upon Sophia raiment and ornaments and great store of wealth, and every few days he would send a messenger to ask after her and the newborns. And when four years had gone by, he provided her with the wherewithal to rear the two children carefully and educate them with the best of instructions. All this while his son Sharkan knew not that a male child had been born to his father, Omar, son of al-Numan, having news only that he had been blessed with the birth of Nusat al-Saman. And they hid the intelligence from him until days and years had sped by, whilst he was busied in battling with the brave and fighting single-handed against the knights. One day, as King Omar was sitting in his palace, his chamberlains came in to him, and kissing the ground before him, said, O king, there be come ambassadors from the king of Rome, lord of Constantinople the Great, and they desire admission to thee and submission to thy decree. If the king command us to introduce them, we will so do, and if not, there is no disputing his behest. He bade them enter, and when they came in, he turned to them, and courteously receiving them, asked them of their case, and what was the cause of their coming. They kissed the ground before him, and said, O King, glorious and strong, O Lord of the arm that is long, know that he who has dispatched us to thee is King Afridun, Lord of Iona Island and the Nazarene armies, the sovereign who is firmly established in the embry of Constantinople, to acquaint thee that he is now waging fierce war, and fell with a tyrant and a rebel, the prince of Caesarea, and the cause of this war is as follows. One of the kings of the Arabs in past time, during certain of his conquests, chanced upon a horde of the time of Alexander, whence he removed wealth past compute, and, amongst other things, three round jewels, big as ostrich eggs, from a mine of pure white gems, whose like was never seen by man. 
Upon each was graven characters of Ionian characters, and they have many virtues and properties, amongst the rest that if one of these jewels be hung round the neck of a newborn child, no evil shall befall him, and he shall neither wail, nor shall fever ail him as long as the jewel remain without fail. When the Arab king laid hands upon them, and learned their secrets, he sent to King Afridun presents of certain rarities, and amongst them the three jewels aforementioned. And he equipped for the mission two ships, one bearing the treasure, and the other men of might to guard it from any who might offer hindrance on the high seas, albeit well assured that none would dare waylay his vessels, for that he was king of the Arabs, and more by token that their course lay over waters subject to the king of Constantinople, and they were bound to his port. Nor were there on the shore of that sea any save the subjects of the great king Afridun. The two ships set out and voyaged till they drew near our city, when there sailed out on them certain corsairs from that country, and amongst them troops from the prince of Caesarea, who took all the treasures and rarities in the ships, together with the three jewels, and slew the crews. When our king heard of this, he sent an army against them, but they routed it. Then he marched a second and a stronger, but they put this also to flight, whereupon the king waxed wroth and swore that he would not go forth against them save in his own person at the head of his whole army, nor would he turn back from them till he had left Caesarea of Armenia in ruins, and had laid waste all the lands and cities over which her prince held sway. So he sent us to the lord of the age and the time, Sultan Umar bin al-Numan, king of Baghdad and of Khorasan, desiring that he aid us with an army. So may honor and glory accrue to him, and he hath also forwarded by us somewhat of various kinds of presents, and of the king's grace he beggeth their acceptance, and the friendly boon of furtherance. Then the ambassadors kissed the ground before him. And Shahrazad perceived the dawn of day, and ceased to say her permitted say. End of section 11 of the Book of a Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume 2 Read by Lars Rolander